Thanks for downloading today's GW Alumni Voices episode. I'm your host, Josh Van Campen. Today we go live into Canberra with Tommy Huang, who's an EY management consultant there. Tommy and I discussed his time studying at UWA, sharing some of his favorite memories, discussing his first job there where he was at Princess Margaret Hospital for Children in Perth for nearly four and a half years, and then his transition into consultancy. We also touch on how important it is for your personal brand for a lot of young professionals. We also discuss what it's like living in Canberra, being away from home with all the hard borders during the COVID-19 pandemic. And Tommy offers some fantastic advice to some young professionals or even some recent graduates or even current students who are looking to future-proof his or her career during the pandemic. Podcast starts now. Now, Tommy, before we get into the questions, I'd love to learn more about what you're getting up to there in Canberra because we're having a bit of a chat beforehand where we, you know, we're going through the pandemic, Perth's doing okay, Melbourne's going through a really bad run at the moment. What about Canberra? How's everything there in the ACT? Well, like yourself in Perth, Canberra right now is doing quite well. We've just entered a, a different phase of restrictions where most of us can walk around quite freely. But, you know, we discussed how entering back into the office, it's not like the way I used to know it. To, to get into the office uh, where I work at Ernst & Young, we have to check in, we have to report what we're wearing, the desk and office spacing is completely different. And that's, that's all with a, a very pragmatic approach to managing risk for COVID. So not much has changed, but a lot has changed. But, you know, the interesting thing is, I still feel very connected with my friends, my colleagues through these sorts of platforms. And I think this is just the new way we're going to have to operate for quite some time. It's going to be a new norm. Now, when you were studying at UWA, was virtual meetings ever a thing for you? Not at all. And in fact, I would actually say what I loved about UWA was the face-to-face interactions. And I'm sure anyone that went to UWA would say it was always about the, the friends, the, the students, the camaraderie, the guild, the coffees, et cetera, et cetera. So it, we did have online courses, but actually we, we all preferred to go into university to meet face-to-face. Now, is there a memory that sticks out for you amongst the rest during your time here as a student? Definitely student activities. So I don't know how the students are doing it these days virtually, but you know, when I was at uni, it was going to the student events, the guild events, et cetera, et cetera. They were the best part of my experiences at UWA. Now you started Bachelor of Science at UWA and when you completed your honours, you started working at Princess Margaret Hospital for Children in Perth for nearly four and a half years. You provided neurophysiological diagnostic services specialising in paediatric care. Can you walk us through what a normal day looked like for you? Absolutely. So I actually was going down into research when I did my Bachelor of Science. So I did honours in muscular dystrophy, looking at the biochemistry and biochemical markers on actin and myosin, which are muscle proteins. And that kind of led me down a pathway of being really interested in clinical research. I was very fortunate uh, to be informed about this opportunity at Princess Margaret Hospital. I did a little bit of work with kids as well. So it was kind of the perfect pairing, clinical research plus working with kids. So, you know, day in the life of a neurophysiology technologist, you know, I'd rock up to Princess Margaret Hospital. Now it's called Perth Children's Hospital. 
we'll open the clinic and I'll go out. There'll be patients, babies, children sitting in the waiting room, and I'll be preparing the clinic and preparing the bed and getting bring them in. And then we'll do our neurophysiology diagnostic testing. So what that involved was looking at the children's brains. Uh, sometimes we looked at their nerves, muscles, to understand whether or not there was any, I guess, neurophysiological conditions. How does one prepare for a day at work there? Because I can imagine working with children and, you, and you, you know, you're probably dealing with some of these kids and families on possibly the worst day of their life. How do you manage that? That's a really good question. I remember the first time I went there, I, I certainly was overwhelmed because we are dealing with humans and at times the news can be quite confronting for myself as a professional at the time. It was you know, brand new to me, but also for the families. But the thing with experience, the thing I learned was actually when things had happened, I kind of clicked into a mode where I just had to get the work done. Mm. And it was what I had learned over time was the parents would be looking towards me and I was in a position of power and authority. And I had to remain calm because if I was not calm, the families would react. So I think it was through time and experience that I actually learn to be very resilient and also be very empathetic and listen to my patients and families. Now, empathy is a word that you just said there. Is is it really important to have empathy in that kind of role or is there people or maybe some of your colleagues that weren't necessarily as empathetic and I kind of guess were a bit desensitized from maybe the emotion of the role? I don't think it's possible to not be empathetic and work in healthcare. I would say all of us had significant high levels of empathy but where we would always have conversations or discussions is what we thought was best for the patient so I remember a distinct story where I was talking to a nurse I was trying to do a diagnostic test on a baby Mm -hmm. and my job was to be able to provide the report to the clinician to uh, confirm whether or not the patient had epilepsy But in order for me to do that, I had to move the baby around. The nurse, on the other hand, thought I was harming the baby because I was moving the baby's head around to place these electrodes on. For me, it was all about the outcome. For the nurse, same thing, very empathetic about the patient, but was concerned that by moving the patient around, I might have inadvertently harmed them and caused them to cry. So we were both empathetic but it was just different opinions on what we thought would be best for the patient. I can understand that having recently had a kid and dealing with doctors and nurses and both having, I guess, my child's health at the forefront of their mind, but yet both had different views. So was that kind of difficult in the health system where at the end of the day, it is the patient that you're caring about and you want the best result, but you know, it is science. Everyone has a different view. There's a different process to these things, isn't there? Absolutely. So you've hit the nail. I think the key thing and what I learned again through experience and time was communication. So being really clear up front and managing expectations. So before I even started anything, I'll just say to the nurse, are we ready? Is the family informed? Are they ready? Do they know what's going to happen? And so one thing I developed over my many years at Princess Margaret Hospital was before I even started doing anything, just 
have a conversation, you know, display that empathy, have that conversation with the carer. So the nurse at the time, this is what we're about to do. It might cause them some distress and they might cry, but also have that conversation with the family too. And then everyone understands what is about to happen. And then you start doing it and you just constantly check in and ask and ask and communicate. Now, communication is probably something I want to touch on here with the next question because you're a small business owner with your family, Mikado Japanese. How did you run a business without it running you? Good question. So I was very lucky. I had a, it's a family business. It helped me through my university studies. And I think this links back into, you know, being empathetic and having a customer oriented service mm-hmm. mindset. So I kind of feel like having worked in hospitality, it made me an even better clinician working in healthcare. And then uh, eventually it led me into management consulting and being able to listen to the customer, ask them the right questions, and also have a service-oriented mindset. So how did you balance full-time work, study, and running a business? With great sacrifice, to be honest. So I was very fortunate that my family was super understanding, but uh, I, I won't pretend that there were many nights where I didn't get to go out and have the social sort of life that I would have preferred, I guess, at the time. But all those sacrifices that my family made before me, that was uh, insignificant uh, in what I was doing. And to be honest, all of it was to lay the foundation for my career Mm. and I'm still laying the foundation for my career and it's going to continue onwards. Because I touched on communication before. So how did you communicate with your family in regards to, you know what, it's a Saturday night. I want to be out socializing or it might be Friday night, but I don't really want to work. How do those conversations take place? (laughs) With great difficulty. (laughs) If If I'm being honest with great negotiation, with my family. So I had to, there was one point in my studies when I came back for postgraduate studies, I was working full-time at the hospital whilst having a part-time job at my family restaurant to support my family in their business venture, but also studying full-time after hours. So I was very, very focused and driven. So I think the thing for me, like those conversations were difficult, but when I knew what I wanted to do and I had very clear objectives and purpose on why I was doing what I was doing. So the sacrifices weren't a big deal, if that makes sense. Yeah. So do you ever look back, you know, at the time, I'm sure you felt like you may have missed out on some opportunities, maybe just more so socially. Do you look back and go, Oh, I wish I didn't really work as much or you look back on I'm so glad I you know sacrificed the social aspect for my family and my career so I wouldn't change anything and I am forever grateful for everything that my family taught me in terms of work ethic and values the sacrifices you know social they'll come around always they always and to be perfectly honest I've had a very sociable life as well <laughs> they short term like yeah, you don't get to go to a party. Well, you know, it's not a big deal. You just go to the party later, to be honest. Mm. And they will definitely be there. My yeah. friends will still be there. No big deal. Yeah, like, but over time, what I did learn was how do I balance this? 
so that it was balanced with relationships mm -hmm. as well. So going into more of the personal side of things, but you talked about having a child. I imagine one day if I have children, I'm going to have to learn how to balance professional and personal and family commitments. Mm -hmm. And I think it's always going to be an ongoing challenge, but having that understanding and real clear intent and purpose uh, behind what you're doing really helps with your decision-making. Did you ever struggle managing your mental health during those days as well? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a very fair question. And I'm pretty open about this sort of stuff. I think even nowadays, it's far more openly spoken about mm -hmm. in terms of managing well-being, managing mental health. It was stressful. So I remember doing honors. <laughs> this is not what I want uh, people to think honors is all about. I was working through the night, 1am, 2am, because I was absolutely dedicated to getting an outcome from my test results. I would go in on weekends and do the same thing. And to be honest, you'll see a lot of honors students doing that. When it came to professional work, I sometimes do that, but it's not sustainable. And so what I've learned with time is how do you balance it and make it sustainable you know, um, even, even if you're really enjoying and loving the work, which I am, I think uh, it's something that you just need to have uh, a good balance. Now, let's talk about career transition because you move from neurophysiology technologist to consultancy, which you've touched on there now at EY. Why the career change and why EY? So I'll touch on the career change first. I worked in the hospital. I loved working with patients and children. I loved it. But what I realized over time was my role was job specific. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of touched on prior to us, you know, when we started at the very beginning, I touched on this saying that about having a growth mindset. And so my kind of view of the world is if I see a problem, I really want to fix it. I don't kind of sit back and just leave it be. Or if I don't see a problem, I'm always constantly just striving to think outside the box. What can I do differently that will improve the way I'm doing things? Mm -hmm. And so in the clinical setting, a lot of the times, a lot of the work that we do, it's process driven. And it's because we need to be very standardized, precise, and scientific in the way we do our work. And that's for, that's for good reason. But what I faced as a challenge was, how do I improve this when it wasn't my job, I guess? And it was said to me, oh, look, love your attitude, but this isn't your area. Just, you know, just do your bit. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm saying it quite sensitively, but I, I got to a point where I was increasingly wanting to do more. And so I enrolled in postgraduate studies, doing my master's in business administration. And at the time when I enrolled in uh, my MBA, I didn't actually know that I wanted to go into consulting. I didn't even know what consulting was. I actually thought I was going to go into entrepreneurship, run my own business, mm -hmm. or go into health administration, into some kind of corporate role within the Department of Health. That was what I originally planned to. I then through doing the MBA, uh, was exposed to consulting as a career. Uh, what it showed me was being able to apply scientific methods in business and being able to help systems 
or businesses. And I use this word systems intentionally because mm. it is no longer about helping one patient at a time. It's about helping the entire system, which helps many patients at a time. And so for me, that was the biggest driver for me mm. wanting to move from having a very job specific role where it was process driven to something where I see a process now. And in fact, that's my job. If I was to say it again, um, that's my role is now I look at processes potentially or look at systems and we try to identify what ways to improve it. And that's why we've been asked to come in. There's a problem. How do we fix it? How do we advise the client to fix it? So yeah, that's, that's the biggest reason why I, I moved. Uh, to answer the second part of your question, why EY? So at the time, there were a number of firms from the consulting firms. There was Deloitte, PwC, KPMG, all really reputable companies. McKinsey, Bain & Co, BCG, I'll give them all a shout. They were all at the University of Western Australia, you know, plugging why we as an MBA candidate should be joining them. All of them were great, but EY was the firm that stood out for me for two reasons. One, they really played to my purpose and they talk about building a better working world. So for me, you know, these taglines, I know they're corporate taglines, but they help align employees and people to a grander vision, a grander mm. intent. And that's, I believe in that. I believe the work that I do is going to build a better working world comes back to my original comment around doing more good. But also the second thing is I really was engaged with a lot of the people at EY. They really came out and wanted to know me, what I could do, what I could help them with and likewise and how they could help me as a person, as well as a career consulting and that resonated with me significantly. And that was kind of the key decision-making framework uh, why I wanted to join EY. Now, before as well, you were saying you never even really heard of consultancy. So when EY came and did this build there um, at UWA and the MBA program, did you ask them, what do consultants do? Certainly did. It's, it's quite funny. I remember the first time I met with a management consultant, I really didn't know. And for those that work in consulting, I was introduced to a director in consulting, which is quite a senior position in corporate consulting land. And I did not prepare for this conversation. I just had a coffee and I was like, oh, what do you, what do you, what is consulting? What do you guys do? Like genuinely, like with all earnestness and authenticity and curiousness. I, I didn't know what they'd do. And so the guy was very humble about it. And he's like, we, we solve problems. I was like, well, what do you mean you solve problems? What does this really, really mean? Anyway, over time, I finally been able to figure it out. We're problem solvers, but there's different types of consulting. The type of consulting I, I like really doing is having a very methodical way to solve a business problem and using scientific principles in management theory. What are some of those scientific principles that you can share that you bring into your day-to-day -day job? Absolutely love to share. Some of the work that I've done, I've done, I've had the opportunity of working in every single state and territory across the country. So I've worked in Western Australia, remote Western Australia, Northern Territory, South Australia, Sydney, 
now I've relocated to Canberra, uh, Brisbane. I, I, I can keep going on and on. The ones that are the most memorable for me, the ones that relate to patient work. So I was in Western Australia and I was looking at emergency department performance. Oh, wow. And so the performance target was four hours. So as a patient, you want to be able to go into the emergency department. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that if you are seen and uh, treated and have a, what they call disposition. So making a decision within four hours of when you get into the emergency department, uh, it links to good outcomes for you as a patient. And so one of my most memorable experiences was doing a truckload of analytics, looking at performance data, and then using sort of hypothesis led framework. So for those scientists listening on this, you know, what is the hypothesis that we need to test? And using data to actually back that rather than anecdotal reports. So in management, management science, sometimes you'll hear people talk about, oh, we make a business decision based on my experience. And that experience is absolutely valid, but sometimes it's very difficult to prove. And so when you use data to be able to inform decision-making, that is the holy grail and I love that sort of work where we're able to, to demonstrate via the data that if you do this, and if you make this little change here, it could improve by X. And then the best part is if after time you come back and you remeasure it again, and you can see the, what they call the benefits of the implementation. How hard is it in your role to change people's habits so we always hear this is how we've always done it i'm sure you probably hear that every time you go into a new organization always 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 hear it how hard is it in my role i would say it's hard for anyone in this sort of space because it comes back down to this concept about communication i said before empathy as well so when we're being asked in, in consulting when we're being asked to come in and help our clients our clients are the analogy is like a patient. They are professionally asking us for help. So coming back to that, with respect to change, I think it's really important to be very humble about it because we're usually coming in and looking at other people's life work. And so some of these people have been doing this for a long time and it's a privilege for us to come in and be able to look at the work that they're doing. And it's a privilege to be able to provide an outside in view. And so I, I don't take it for granted. So my job should be being able to communicate and work with these people uh, to help them understand an outside in view. And to be honest, I'm always, I'm always learning from my clients and I'm always learning their views because they've been in the role for a very long time and they know their business really well. And so, you know, whenever I make a recommendation or whenever I'm trying to do something, it's not an ill thought or rushed thought. Um, it's, it must be considered because a lot of the times we are actually asking people to change what they've fundamentally done for a career. And so if you think about it, the analogy is if I was doing my homework and then someone came in, looked at my homework and said, oh, well, your homework isn't up to speed or it's not good enough. That's kind of the analogy. Of course, you're going to get a little bit of defensiveness. And 
it's kind of like that, uh, that the seven stages of grief sort of model. I can't remember the exact name where at first there's a disbelief and then you go through the, the period into anger and then fear and then eventually you get through to acceptance. And that comes through with a lot of empathy, uh, understanding that, you know, you're an outsider coming in, giving a view and then also through communication and having really good communication skills. So a lot of the work, I believe, you know, good consultants are people that have high degree of uh, emotional intelligence as well as IQ and communicate a lot. Now I'm going to change it up here a bit. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon is famously quoted as saying, your brand is what your people say about you when you're not in the room. Now, Tommy, you're a consultant, but you still consider yourself a scientist. Is your personal brand more important than ever before in 2020? Yeah, I think personal brand is very important, not just in 2020. So I know I've said to you that I still consider myself a scientist at heart. And the reason why I say that, it's, it's more on the lines of I'm a very curious person and I want to understand how things work and what makes them tick and I want to be precise. I guess that's the brand that I exude when I'm talking with you. Internally, at work, at EY, I also have another brand, and that's you know being able to deliver outcomes for my clients. And you do have to spend a bit of time developing and managing your personal brand in a professional context. And even as an outside sort of brand on LinkedIn, even nowadays on Instagram, if that's your jam. So I think branding serves two purposes. One, it really helps with being able to connect with others. So for opportunities. And then secondly, being able to continue building your personal sort of career. At least that's kind of how I've seen how it's been helpful. I do feel uncomfortable talking about personal branding because it feels like almost like I'm spruiking myself. And I think, you know, this comes to my point being sometimes I feel like a scientist. I think a lot of us that have that science background, we're naturally introverts, uh, not all, but I would say um, majority that go into science. We prefer to be in the numbers. We prefer to be hard on the facts less on the fluff and so we inherently are a little more introverted than say uh, i don't know sports science (laughs) so you you did sports science i I think uh from memory i did sports management but you know it's close in the sports field but it's interesting that you, you you touch on that because being i guess you're saying a scientist being introvert i feel like for people like yourself and a lot of scientists they like their research or their numbers to speak for themselves rather than them having to, yeah. to I guess, portray themselves and communicate in, in a certain way because, you know, as you said, like personal brand, there are so many people out there and you probably see it daily on LinkedIn where people are putting up a new flashy video and they're interviewing somebody and all these kind of things. And that's them trying to, I guess, push out their own personal brand. But sometimes you also wonder, is it authentic? And I think from your end, you've always been quite authentic and people know who they are. So you think, if you're not in the room, what are people saying about you? I would expect that authenticity would be the first thing they say. Yeah, I, I would hope they say that. That's um, something I, from, I guess if you were to ask me if, what matters to me is I care about whether or not people think I'm an authentic person. And I care about people thinking whether or not I care about them too. That's what's important to me. And you, you could say that is my brand that I always try to make sure that 
people, when they think of me, they think of someone that cares about their problem, cares about them and their situation, uh, and cares about trying to solve the problem for them. So, yeah. Now, in 2017, you completed the Emerging Leaders in Governance program, which is aimed at developing young professionals for leadership and governance roles within the aged care community sector. So what inspired you to apply for the program and what were your expectations? So again, comes to my greater purpose. I think the first thing about doing good things for the greater good, it came to me through an opportunity through meeting someone through my MBA. So if we link it back to your prior question around branding, I guess I've always been interested in doing not-for-profit work. I always want to improve community outcomes, anything for the community. And while I was talking about this and my passion, there was an MBA student that was already involved in the ELGP. And she was talking to me about, uh, I've just recently done this course. It teaches you about board governance. And I think you'd be a great candidate. In that case, that's where that spruiking or just, it wasn't even spruiking. It was just me talking about my passion. And she introduced me to the ELGP program. 100% grateful for that. I learned a lot about how corporate governance or board governance works, especially for not-for-profit. And it did lead on to an opportunity where I was on the Food Bank Finance Audit Risk Committee in Western Australia. And again, that was through a network contact at EY. Told them I just finished my course at the ELGP and they were looking for someone to come and join. And because part of the course is teaching you about diversity in board members. So diversity, not just in, we tend to think in male and female gender sort of diversity, but in this particular case, it was more on age diversity because most board members are 40 years and above. I was in my 30s. So, you know, I bring youth and enthusiasm, but also a different perspective from my experiences and not just having just only board specific experiences. So that was something I I found really useful. Yeah, so what are the biggest challenges for young professionals getting on a board position? Because there can be that perception that some young professionals are trying to get on a board just to boost their CV. Yeah, so absolutely. uh, There absolutely is that perception that some young professionals just want to do it for boosting their CV. And I think that is a challenge and a stigma that as a young professional, we need to challenge ourselves to rethink, well, what's the value that I can bring to the board or the committee. And so for me, applying for the finance audit risk committee, it was never about building my CV. It was about what can I bring to help this organization? And so for me, I did a lot of work in finance transformation, program transformation, project management. And that was the sort of skill set that I offered to the finance audit risk committee was that I've done a lot of business transformation sort of work. I can work in the committee as a member and provide advice where I can uh, review the numbers and then bring an outside in view because I'm a management consultant and provide access to tools and templates, things like that, reporting templates. So my advice to young professionals is I sometimes hear young professionals or uh, grads come up to me, you know, uh, they ask me, what are the sorts of learning or opportunities I can get at UI, which is great. It means that they're very eager, enthusiastic. But what I would advise young professionals, well, what's the value you can bring? Value can be your youth. That's absolutely a value because your youth has a certain type of experience. So 
in your career or your experience from what have you done can you bring an outside in perspective to the board or a committee that you're looking to join now do you have to be an expert at all to be on these boards i would say i'm not an expert at all <laughs> so i wouldn't think you need to be an expert i think you would need to be someone that is willing to learn and curious and in fact i recall asking the same question when i was doing the elgp course and it's about people who have curiosity because you want to be able to ask the right sort of questions you got to have the courage to ask those questions as well so i think what is most valuable for those sorts of committees and board memberships is having the courage to ask questions and the curiosity to be able to think about the question then you ask the management team here are some thoughts on the things I would like to look at. What do you think? And why might this be going up or down? Whatever it is that you're looking at. With a lot of these young professionals that you manage, do you ever have to manage their expectations and maybe teach them patience? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> That's uh, patience is a virtue, as they say. I love the enthusiasm and eagerness um, of graduates coming in and the young professionals I work with. But I think what I would say and advise and or quite often say to my mentees is you just got to have some patience. Just know that everything that you're doing is building towards this bigger plan of yours and just be really clear on what your big plan is. And if you know what that is, things will always fall into place. It's okay to be impatient, but don't do it you know, if, if I can be politically incorrect on this, um, don't be a dick about it. <laughs> so just be a good person and trust in things will fall into light. And if you're really unhappy about it, that's okay. You know, you still have a choice and you still have options. Don't let it frustrate you too much. That's good advice. Now we've touched on before you being based in Canberra. Was working away from Perth always a goal of yours? Yeah, it was. I didn't realize I was going to move to Canberra. I never thought of Canberra as a second location. I actually wanted to go international. My original intent was to move overseas, possibly to Canada, because I wanted to understand how the Canadian health system works. But what ended up happening was through a series of very, very fortunate events, an opportunity came up in Canberra and I just couldn't refuse it. It was, it was just amazing. And I don't regret it at all. It's been yeah, an amazing opportunity coming to Canberra because of the strategic importance the, the federal system plays uh, across our country. And I feel like I'm only just scratching the surface. Having even been here for just over a year now, I'm still learning, always learning. Now, because of the pandemic we're currently going through, what impact have, you know, Think of the border closures had on your work, but also your family. Yeah, so for work, I'm quite lucky. We were very, very agile in our way of working. So before the borders were closed, before anything was going into lockdown, our CEO actually came out and said, hey, we've seen this happen because we're a global firm. We've seen this happen in our Asian countries. We know what's coming. And so we're going to ask everyone to work from home. And this is two weeks prior to the prime minister coming out saying we're going into lockdown mode. So by then, um, and, and as management consultants, we're actually a very mobile workforce. And so I kind of touched on that. I've worked in every single state and territory. 
So most of the time my office is just my laptop and it might be a hotel room or it might be a client office. So I'm very mobile. We move around quite a lot. So it wasn't any different. Staying connected with family, that has probably been the biggest challenge is how do I stay connected with my friends and family? But that came with moving to Canberra. And I wouldn't say that was completely due to the lockdown for me in my personal circumstance. So it hasn't really changed too much there for me. Now, we're getting a bit of pandemic whiplash. COVID-19 has made many people across the globe nervous about their career. So what advice would you provide someone looking to future-proof his or her career during a pandemic? I think with this one, it's a really good question. And I know this will be something everyone would be thinking about. What I would say to them, to whoever's listening, is that it's a real challenge right now. And when there are challenges, you know, having this growth mindset that it also represents an opportunity. So I remember when we started using Microsoft Teams, you know, two weeks before lockdown, it was still a new software. We've been testing it out as a internally at EY, trying it out. Then, and then all of a sudden it became like this new software that we needed to, to use. And then we needed to learn how to work in a virtual manner in, in ways of working. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that now, like with everyone that's graduating or coming into the workforce, you will be coming into a completely different way of working. It's also a great thing. You can work globally. You can work from anywhere in the world. So long as you've got an internet connection, so long as you've got access to something like Microsoft Teams or any other platform where you can collaborate I think this actually opens up a great opportunity for people. So one of the examples I was talking about were maybe, you know, people who are stay at home or had physical disabilities now opens up a completely different way of working. They they don't actually have to go to the office and we're also able to show that you can still be productive. So I think, you know, world's oyster, as they say, great opportunity here. How do you future-proof yourself? Having that growth mindset. And I think now it's really teaching a lot of people to be resilient, teaching people to be agile. People growing up through this are going to be far more tech savvy than I was. I remember using ICQ when I was growing up. That's not even a thing anymore. Uh, and I know, Josh, you, you know what ICQ I haven't heard ICQ in years. That's amazing. Yep. It's bringing back memories. Yeah. So it's uh, as uh, scary as it is, and I know it's really scary, I also think, you know, this is the time that you guys get to come in and so it's a level playing field. And in fact, I would say the the new people coming in now, this is your new norm. While this is so different for so many other people. So you're going to be light years ahead of us. And I commend you on your resilience and your adaptability to the change and keep your chin up. You're going to be our future leaders. Now, are there some skills you wish you had when you became a consultant that you have now that might have made that transition a little bit easier? Or do you feel like, because I'm thinking about some you know, recent graduates, soon to be graduates who are thinking maybe some soft skills that they might require to be a consultant? There are two things I, I would say. First, soft skills, definitely. I, I touched on it before. Hospitality was great for me because it really taught me how to talk to people. If I was just that true scientist and hid behind the numbers, I'd still be crunching numbers. But, you know, the the science taught me some amazing skills with being very quantitative, being very methodical, uh, systematic to problem solving. And I I love that. 
work in hospitality really rounded me out in being able to have the confidence to speak to people. So that's the soft skill side. On the technical skill side, I think now what's emerging is the data science, data engineers. What's happening is that uh, a lot of the organizations I'm working with, they have this wealth of information. Think of Facebook, you know, think of your phone, how much data is it collecting? They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to use it and turn it into what we call insights. And in fact, that's my current role is to be able to generate what we call actionable insights, moving away from just descriptive analytics, which is this is X number of widgets that we did in the past to, okay, how might we collect that data and then actually inform a decision? And I think this is such an exciting opportunity right now. And so if, if I had my way again, I did study computer science as an undergrad, but uh, I think right now, you know, data science, understanding Python, you know, how to use R, all these new types of software that I can't even pronounce most of the time. That's where it's really heating up. That's really good advice. Now, Tommy, that's all the time we've got. But if people want to engage with you, connect with you, where's the best place to visit? Uh, shoot me a line on LinkedIn. I'm super open. I'd love to connect. I think I've only been able to make it to where I am through people offering their time, advice, experience, uh, and talking to them. It's the least I can do to pay it forward. And one day you'll do the same thing. So yeah, please reach out to me, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I think there'll be a link posted up on this and yeah, shoot me a message anytime. Beautiful. Also, well, thanks for joining us today, Tommy. Really appreciate you giving us insight into your career from uh, scientist to consultant. Brilliant. Cheers. There may be less coffee catch-ups, hugs, or high-fives. But we are still part of the global UWA community. And have a role to play. The UWA alumni community is committed to helping all, all of our students, students start and graduate. graduate. Through the COVID-19 crisis. You can help by making a donation. Send, send a message of support. support. Become a mentor, ambassador. Or simply check in with a fellow graduate. Let's all do our part. Let's all do our part. Let's all do our part and, and help, help the global, global UWA, UWA community. community.